One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my own website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 43 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, November the 25th. First, I'll be talking to the CEO of Perfectus Group, Chris Hutchins. He will talk about inflation and the hidden EBIT killer, financial erosion. Financial erosion occurs when businesses such as retailers get overcharged even slightly by suppliers along the supply and value chain. While small, these small overcharges snowball and can become a huge issue. It can also come in the form of rebates not claimed by retailers or small oversights with compliance of contracts. To wit, in 2021, Perfectus helped recover nearly $29 million in unclaimed revenue or supplier overcharges for its clients across nearly 6,500 claims, which is just the tip of the iceberg. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest wages and jobs figures. But now, let's talk to Chris Hutchins. Chris, uh, tell us about financial erosion. So financial erosion is a concept that we use to describe when companies do great procurement deals and they lose the value of those deals through inadequate compliance and controls. So, you know, you can imagine a small amount of a price being wrong over a lot of invoices adds up to a lot or perhaps um, a client's being charged for too many units of something or a surcharge or something like that. And so the value that is designed is not the value that's realised. So financial erosion is the term that we use to describe that. I guess inflation would be making it far worse, wouldn't it? It is, certainly, yeah. And inflation, you know, is a massive problem facing every business all around the world at the moment. And it was interesting listening to a couple of your previous episodes, actually. And, you know, it's certainly a topic of the day. And I think the thing with inflation is that you can't control it. All you can do is work on what you can control and make sure you do realise the value from those, those deals that you do and make sure you're not leaking EBIT just out the door through this concept of financial erosion. What do you do? I mean, what does Prospectus do? Uh, you have a rebate deal management system, is that right? Yeah, so we've been in business for just over 21 years. We're in Australia and New Zealand. And what we do is we help clients automate compliance and recovery in the financial control space. So um, we have a combination of softwares we have an audit software, we have a contract compliance software, and we have a rebate deal management software. And so through these technologies, we're able to help clients um, really get to the devil of the detail. I mean, you think about um, really big end, big end businesses, and even small businesses for that matter, it's just not possible to be across every single transaction in your company. So that's what we do. We come in and help automate that. And this does this right across the supply chain? Yeah, well, it, it adds the most value where you have the most transactions because that's where the errors can go wrong. And, and this is an interesting concept. It was, it was quite it was quite a lot of similarities between some of the conversation you had with Damien from Highball. And 
and what we do. So businesses typically use the uh, ERP system of choice, which is Microsoft Excel, you know, all around the world. And the problem with that is that it's, it's a very manual thing. You know, you know, you've got a, a static spreadsheet sitting somewhere on someone's computer or in a drive somewhere that's not, you know, it's not responding to anything. I mean, you can achieve a level of automation through Excel, but those things still rely on humans to co compute and calculate those things and update them. A lot of clients actually, you know, they use Excel or they have layers of control like an ERP system or a procurement system. Um, some clients, you know, or, or potential businesses out there rather they don't, they may not have anything in place, in which case they're doing everything manually and they may not be checking anything at all. So, you know, those checks and controls are really important, especially during a really high inflation environment where, you know, we're seeing heading towards double digit inflation. I mean, that's, that's staggering. That's a once in a generational thing. And this this uh, is this an audit system as well. Yeah, so we use we use our technologies to deliver the audits that we do, and we for clients that understand the value of, of the control being a program, we just implement a, an automated data feed into that, and then we manage the results and help deal with the supply chain partners for them, and then you know, achieve a level of compliance that that they might not either realise. So, you know, for example. We work with one of the really big supermarkets and you know they find tens of millions of dollars every year despite their levels of control across erp systems procurement platforms and with tens of people in their finance and procurement functions human error still drives these things and we're really good at finding that how many how many uh, millions have you claimed to have how many millions have you recovered in unclaimed revenues yeah, in the last 12 months, um, 29 million Australian, uh, and that was across 6,500 claims. So uh, it was a popular stat that we kick around in our offices. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty interesting to think about that because sometimes you find issues that can be two to three million dollars or even bigger in, in, in a case from you know, our history, we found something that was seven million dollars, but they all add up. That's the point. You know, I think six and a half thousand issues. So how do you find all those things? You know, and if you're not on top of them and you, you're not doing sort of live compliance, then you know they can quickly add up. I'd imagine. I'd imagine with the supermarket chain, there'd be so many. Yeah, well, I mean, those supermarket uh, and retail specifically, they have very complex commercial supply chains. You know, it's not just the price and the invoice price and the delivered amount. It's also rebate deal income. Um, there can be short-term incentives, long-term incentives. All retailers have, you know, very complex commercial arrangements like that, and um, we we do have a very large footprint in retail. And we add a lot of value there. How many how many clients does uh, Prospectus have? Yeah, across Australia and New Zealand, we deal with some really big household names like Officeworks, David Jones, Chemist Warehouse, BHP, uh, Fonterra, New Zealand, um, Super Cheap Auto. Amongst many more, we, we also work with uh, some of the big banks. Um, so that, you know, these are really household names. And increasingly, we're getting getting inquiries, you know, to help further. We recently changed um, our go-to-market model to be a more marketing-led company, uh, and starting to get out there and, and help people understand that this problem exists. And, and you know, we're getting a lot of interest around that. But I'd imagine, you know, when you've recovered, say, twenty-nine million, I mean, that might be just, just be the tip of the iceberg, wouldn't it? Oh, it is. Yeah. And this is a problem that exists everywhere that, that commerce um, exists. So, you know, it's a global problem. It's hard to put a finger on how much it, it, how large it might be. There was a study that the most relevant thing we found um, was a study by McKinsey that said it could cross the, the source to pay or S to P value chain. 
um, it could be as high as three and a half percent of spend. You know, so you think hundreds of billions, potentially even trillions across the world. Um, it is a really, really big problem, but also a really big opportunity because if you don't know that you're you're suffering this financial erosion, you're not realising the values of the deals that you've done. Well, you can make a direct contribution to your EBIT margin um, just by making sure you get on top of it. We talk about big opportunities. It's also a big opportunity for your company to expand overseas. Yeah, that's right, and that's that was what we aim to do. So we're, we're very focused on the Australian New Zealand market at the moment, but we're putting all the foundations in place to be able to go and um, be successful and, and help businesses all around the world. Um, we do have big, big plans and big aspirations, but we're humbly taking one step at a time and looking forward to being in a place where we can spread our wings, so to speak. So what would be your growth markets overseas? Well, I think we're seeing a lot of demand from the mining sector. I mean, commodity prices are, are very volatile, as you'd expect. I mean, there's very large geopolitical and macroeconomic factors at play here. And there's also, you know, really big shift from um, traditional energy into uh, electrification, which is driving up the price of rare earth metals, as, as you would be able to cross. And so all, all the way through every, every part of the, um, the mining sector, you see that um, the, the importance of getting all the, all the deals right is, is really on both sides, whether you're charging the right amount uh, for revenue or whether you're paying the right amount as a cost input is really important. Supply chains have been really badly disrupted over the last few years because of COVID. Um, so any any sort of raw material that's moving around would be subject to volatility and um, and potentially erroneous because of the urgency that everyone's needed stuff. Manufacturing as well. I mean, cost inputs are just crazy at the moment um, for, for all manufacturers around the world. As I said earlier, retail is really a place because of the high, high frequency of transactions um, and the complexity of those deals where there is always value to add in retailing. In some of those international markets, things are done very manually. So they're probably three sectors that we think would be high growth for us. Right. Okay. So uh, retail, mining and manufacturing globally. Yeah. And construction also is an interesting one. Um, very complex rules around labour costs and, and um, things like that. We do have a few construction clients as well. Okay. Well, Chris, look, thank you very much for your time. It's been terrific talking to you. Pleasure, Leon. Thanks for having me. And now let's talk to Indeed Economist, Callum Pickering. Very impressive figures with wages and unemployment. What's your view about this? Yeah, some incredibly strong data this week, certainly on the labour force side with employment up another 32,000, which brought the unemployment rate down to 3.4%, which was the lowest level since September 1974. People are finding jobs and they're finding high quality full-time jobs. You know, the increase has been driven entirely by full-time jobs yet again, as it has been for much of the pandemic recovery, which is an excellent sign. And with so many jobs still available, still vacant across the country, there's good reason to suspect that the labour market could potentially tighten further over the next three to six months, which would also be an outstanding outcome. In, in terms of wages, we've, we've seen a, a pickup in, in wages with annual wage growth now exceeding 3% for the first time in a, about a decade. That's a good sign, but of course there is a, a massive caveat around wage growth, which is the fact that it's, it's nowhere near as high as inflation has been. So cost of living pressures continue to hurt Australian households and Australian workers, um, and that's going to be something they have to deal with for the foreseeable future. What's fascinating about the unemployment figures was there was a 
stage where it looked like in September, July, September, employment didn't grow at all. And But these figures seem to buck that trend. Yeah, it was, but perhaps a little bit surprising because, as you said, uh, employment didn't increase at all from July to September. And that to me, suggested that the labour market was starting to to stabilise, potentially leading into a bit of a cool-off period. And then this October data comes through much stronger than the market anticipated and suggests that there there may still be a little bit of strength left in in the labour market. Nevertheless, it's it's clear that it's becoming increasingly difficult for businesses to find suitable candidates for a lot of the roles that are being advertised. We, We continue to have near record numbers of job vacancies across the country, with the job vacancy rate more than twice as high as it was before the pandemic began. And there's just not that many suitable people out there who aren't currently in the workforce. So a lot of these jobs are going to go go unfilled for longer. And that becomes more of a problem as the unemployment rate gets down to these very low levels. So we might see the unemployment rate come down a little bit from the 3.4% current rate we have. But the scope for a, a large decline in the unemployment rate probably isn't there anymore. We're almost as low as we can go. Right. So you can see it slipping maybe a little bit, but not like down to 3% or anything like that? No, we might get a 3.3, a 3.2. It's hard to see us going under 3% just because there is such a mismatch between the types of of skills that uh, employers are looking for and and the types of skills and experiences that aren't currently in the workforce. If, If you're trying to find nurses or doctors or tech workers, it's, it's going to be hard to find those people outside the workforce at the moment, which means the scope for bringing more people into the workforce isn't as strong as it was earlier in the recovery. And there would have also been a fall in the underutilisation rate. Would that be right? Yeah, that's right. Um, the unemployment rate came down and underemployment also came down to 5.9%, which left the underutilisation rate at 9.3%. Now, when you hear 9.3%, you think that's probably a pretty big number, but it's actually the lowest level of underutilisation we've had in 40 years. So it's incredibly low by historical standards. Again, it's going to be pretty difficult to to bring that much lower. As I said, the unemployment rate probably doesn't have much scope to go lower. The underemployment rate could potentially go a little bit lower, but it's it's going to be difficult to get the underutilisation rate below, say, 9%, I think. So it'll go down as low as it's likely to get. Is that right? Yeah, there's not much scope for further improvement. You know, Like I said, you, you, you're at 9.3%. You might get to a 9.2, 9.1. You're not going to get an 8.5. You're not going to get an 8% type underutilisation rate. I think that's not something that is feasible with the current labour market dynamics that we have. What about hours worked? Did that, did that increase? Yeah, big surge uh, in October, which is always a good sign, up 2.3% uh, in the month of October. Uh, it primarily reflected two things. The, the first was that fewer people were taking leave than they normally do. Now, October is typically a holiday period. You know, students are home from school, so parents take time off work. They seem to be doing that in reduced numbers this year compared to previous years, and that could reflect the the greater ability of of people to work from home than we've had in in previous years. Another reason why hours worked has surged has been that there has been a 39% decline in the number of people working reduced hours due to sick leave or illness over the past couple of months. Now, that reflects the change in policy around COVID. Previously, you got COVID, you had to take time out of work. That's no longer the case, which which does mean that some people are, are getting sick, maybe not having many symptoms and going into 
to work as they normally would. So, yeah, those two factors together have combined for a, a very large increase in hours worked across the country. So you wouldn't see any scope for the labour market deteriorating significantly in the, in the near term? Would that be right? Yeah, so while I don't see much scope for, for improvement in the labour market, I also don't see much scope for a deterioration in the labour market. And the main reason for that is because there are so many jobs unfilled across the country. So if someone wants to lose their job in, in the current economic circumstances, there's plenty of opportunities out there for them to get back into the workforce. And normally a high vacancy rate is highly correlated with strong employment growth. Now, I don't think that's going to be the case going forward because of how tight the labour market is. But it is highly unusual for employment to decline when job vacancies are elevated. And so in order for the Australian labour market to deteriorate, and, and we do expect it to soften at some point over the next 12 to 18 months, the first thing we're going to need to see is actually a reduction in the number of job vacancies that are out there, the number of job ads that are posted online. And we're not seeing anything like that at the moment. Which is interesting because over the last week you had Deutsche Bank was predicting a recession, but they, they said they were predicting a recession not on the basis of two negative quarters, but on the basis of unemployment rising. They were saying unemployment would rise to 4.5% in 2023. Yeah, I mean, they're not the only ones predicting that the unemployment rate is going to increase. Obviously, the Reserve Bank also thinks there's going to be a, you know, a modest increase in the rate of unemployment over the next 12 to, to 18 months. I wouldn't say it's impossible. It's just that a near-term deterioration is unlikely given the level of, of job creation we're seeing. That sort of level of job creation indicates that businesses are still pretty optimistic about their operations and they're still pretty optimistic about the economic outlook. If they were genuinely concerned, they'd be reducing the number of jobs they have on offer and they'd be cutting staff. And we're not seeing any of that at the moment. Now, could that situation change? Absolutely. High inflation and rising interest rates are going to hit the economy at, at some point. It's just that we're not seeing any meaningful signs of that just yet. What does this mean for the RBA? Well, both the wage data and the unemployment data came in a little hotter than anticipated by the RBA. The, the wage data, uh, the wage growth at 3.1%, that's what the RBA thought we'd get to by the end of the year. We got there three months early, which does suggest that wage growth is a little bit stronger than the RBA anticipated. And the unemployment rate got back down to 3.4% a couple of months earlier than the RBA might have anticipated. So you combine those two uh, figures together and it does suggest that the economy is a little bit healthier than the RBA might have anticipated when they put through their, their latest economic forecasts, which also suggests that the economy is a little bit more resilient than perhaps the RBA might have anticipated as well. Whether that means they're going to be more aggressive with rate hikes, I'm, I'm not sure. I think they are almost certain to increase the cash rate by 25 basis points when they meet in December. They don't meet in January. They'll meet again in February. There's an awfully good chance they'll continue to hike rates when they meet in February as well. And I think that the cash rate's likely ahead to somewhere between 35 to 4% at some point next year. Right, because the IMF is saying they have to keep uh, increasing rates as well to stabilise inflation. Yeah, and I think the RBA recognises that they, they certainly haven't had a victory over inflation, not even close. They anticipate that inflation is going to hit 8% by the end of the, the year. And, and all signs point to the fact that the economy can withstand higher interest rates. The economy is showing itself to be highly resilient. Demand for workers is incredibly high. And normally when you see those sort of things, that, that's going to trigger high inflation for the foreseeable future. Uh, in order to control inflation, the RBA needs to curb uh, the demand for goods and services. And that hasn't been achieved yet. And so they will need to hike rates further next year. And, and so you would see it peaking at about 4% next year? 
I think so. There is obviously a lot of uncertainty around how high the cash rate might go because inflation is so very high, even though there is that scope for inflation to come down quite uh, rapidly if the economy begins to, to shift. But right now, I would expect the, the cash rate to, to get towards 4% at, at some point next year. Um, and the RBA would probably want to get there sooner rather than later. So it wouldn't surprise me if maybe we got to that level you know, by mid next year. And then the RBA will assess whether they've done enough to bring inflation under control or not. But like I said, huge amount of uncertainty around inflation and, and, the, and the cash rate. So it's merely my best guess. So we really don't know whether inflation will keep rising or whether, or whether there are signs of it peaking? Well, there are, there are certainly some signs that inflation might be near its peak. The RBA certainly expects that uh, it will peak at the end of this year. We've seen uh, declines in, in shipping costs. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Which is a good sign. We've also seen some uh, fuel prices also come off as well, both of which are obviously uh, key determinants of the current inflation outbreak that we've had. Um, so that would leave us somewhat optimistic that inflation is either at or, or very near its peak and would actually come off next year. The, the question is how much it comes off, right? If inflation is 5% next year, then it's still high. It still warrants a tighter monetary policy. If it softens to, say, 3%, then the RBA might sit back and go, OK, we've, we've done enough. Um, we're just going to let the economy sort itself out. Um, so the, the big question is, what does inflation ease to? Because if it hits 8% this year, it, it's got to soften a, a fair bit before it gets anywhere near to the RBA's target. Right, of 2 to 3%. Yeah, yep. yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, Callum, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, the COP27 climate talks in Egypt, which came close to collapse on their final day, came to a resolution on Sunday with a last-minute deal to create a fund to aid poor countries harmed by the impacts of climate change. The agreement marks a landmark moment in global climate politics and acknowledgement that rigid nations are responsible to the developing world for the harm caused by rising temperatures. It was an historic win for countries facing rising seas, devastating floods and drought. The deal also redraws the old divide between rich and poor nations into a new order that puts countries responsible for climate warming greenhouse gas emissions against those suffering the consequences. Still, the approval came at the cost of leaving out of the final agreement more ambitious commitments such as emissions peaking in 2025 and a phase down of all fossil fuels, not just coal, as agreed at COP26 in Glasgow last year. 
The US went further on a proposal that wasn't even on the table at the start of the summit. US negotiator Trig Talley said the world's biggest economy and largest historic emitter was ready to support the phase-out, not just phase-down, of all fossil fuels. It didn't go through, with Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia and other oil-producing countries pushing back hard. At one point, the draft agreement included language that would have weakened past commitments. The final text leaves a commitment to keeping global warming at 1.5 Celsius by 2100, hanging by a thread. The deal, which was adopted without a single objection, responds to a key demand of developing nations and small island states. Delegates agreed to establish funding arrangement for loss and damage, as as it is known, in the very first few minutes of a meeting that convened after 4am in Sharm el-Sheikh, but they were still deliberating over other thorny issues, including how the world should navigate the transition away from fossil fuels and reigning greenhouse gas emissions driving climate change. Debates were still expected over a potential pledge to phase down all fossil fuels and peak emissions by 2025, language that had been sought by the EU and other countries. But the loss and damage agreement already marked progress three decades after Vanuatu forced other nations to set up an insurance fund to help island nations cope with rising seas. On loss and damage, countries agreed that the most vulnerable nations would be prioritised and high emitters like China and India may be able to contribute to the fund. Under the agreement, the nations decide to establish new funding arrangements for assisting developing countries that are particularly vulnerable to the adverse effects of climate change in responding to loss and damage. That includes a focus on providing and assisting in mobilising new and additional resources which are meant to complement existing programs and funds. The breakthrough came after a flurry of last-minute negotiations over how to address the increasing toll climate change is exacting from developing nations that have contributed few of the greenhouse gas emissions driving the phenomenon. The issue took on new urgency following monsoon flooding this summer in Pakistan that left more than 1,700 dead and caused at least $30 billion in losses. Vulnerable nations had asked for a new program to provide technical assistance and funding as they deal with more intense droughts, storms and other weather events exacerbated by the Earth's warming. There are still numerous details left to work out, including how the loss and damage facility will actually work or the amount of money that will go into it. And administrators of the local arm of collapsed crypto exchange FTX warn some Australian customers have lost very significant sums of money and that many are unlikely to see the return of their investment as a company failure roils the sector. Quarter Mentham administrator Scott Langdon has asked for more time to convene the first creditors meeting and said in an affidavit that 29,234 separate customers have been identified as having lost significant property and recoverability and current value are yet to be determined. FTX Express has $39 million in its accounts and FTX Australia has $3 million. The, the administrators have found so far more than 280 emails have been received from customers, some using colourful language, to demand their funds back. The collapsed cryptocurrency exchange owes its 50 biggest global creditors nearly US $3.1 billion, that's $4.69 billion Aussie, according to a separate US bankruptcy court filing. FTX owes funds to an estimated 1 million creditors after the parent company led by founder Sam Bankman-Fried filed for bankruptcy in Delaware on November the 11th in one of the largest collapses in corporate history. And Anthony Albanese has accused opponents of the government's controversial industrial relations changes of harbouring an ingrained ideological objection to work 
workers being paid fairly, as he looks to bring renewed energy to attempts to pass a bill before the year ends. In his first appearance at home after rubbing shoulders with world leaders for the past 10 days, the Prime Minister told the union event on Monday that opponents of the plan believe the only way to grow the economy is to limit economic opportunity and diminish workers' security. The intervention comes as employers and the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry launch a last-ditch attempt to delay the bill until 2023 or excise multi-employer bargaining provisions entirely. On Sunday, Mr Albanese said he could extend Parliament and closer to Christmas to pass a secure jobs, better pay bill. He said the government wanted to push up wages urgently, despite opposition to the plan from business and employer groups. ACT independent David Pocock is under pressure to agree to a deal before MPs leave Canberra on December the 1st, but is so far unwilling to sign on to the multi-employer bargaining rules. He believes the government is rushing the bill unnecessarily, and he wants controversial provisions separated out to allow for the majority of the plan to pass a multi-employer rules to face further scrutiny next year. And the Australian Securities Exchange has scrapped a $250 million blockchain project after an independent review identified significant challenges with its ability to meet legal requirements. The controversial project was scheduled to replace a legacy CHESS, that's Clearinghouse Electronic Subregister System, platform in April, after years of setbacks including market readiness and the global pandemic. However, a recent review by Accenture found it would not be capable of meeting high ASX and market standards. Six core issues are indicated in the report, including latency and concurrency. Since ASX processes millions of trade settlements daily, any latency or delay will affect its operations. The Accenture report also pointed out that after seven years, only 63% of the project is completed. Significant technology, governance and delivery challenges are believed to be core issues of the blockchain proposal, which would threaten to undo the secure and stable environment created by Chess since its introduction more than 25 years ago. The ASX will write off up to $255 million pre-taxing costs associated with the project, which was intended to be used as a world-first example of industrial-scale blockchain use. And shares are set for another disappointing year, according to leading strategists, and they don't expect much headway until the Fed not only stops tightening, but starts to cut rates. Strategists at Citi, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley are among those warning of limited upside potential for the US market in 2023. UBS, Macquarie and Morgan Stanley strategists set similarly conservative targets for the Australian market. And the OECD forecasted that Australia's economy will slow markedly from 4% in 2022 to just 1.9% in 2023 and 1.6% in 2024. The global energy price crisis is, is as bad as the 1970s, the OECD says, with spending on electricity, natural gas and coal forecast to double year-on-year year to the highest level in more than four decades. Soaring energy prices mean global economic growth is forecast to slow to just 2.2% in 2023, according to the latest economic outlook from the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. OECD Chief Economist Alvaro Santos Pereira said periods of high energy expenditure were often associated with recession. Spending among OECD nations on electricity, natural gas, oil and coal soared to almost 18% GDP this year, up from about 10% in 2021, with major leaps across all energy categories. Medibank could face a $1 billion compensation bill from the damaging cyber attack that has affected 10 million customers as hackers targeting the companies released the biggest tranche of sensitive data yet in another attempt to pressure it into paying a ransom. The ASX-listed private health insurer confirmed on Sunday morning that another 1,500 customer records containing sensitive health information had been released on the dark web, the largest release of health data so far in the incident. Hackers demanding a $10 million ransom have drip-fed sensitive health information about Medibank customers on the dark web over the past week. 
The hackers also stole data on Medibank employees, including mobile and work, work device numbers. Medibank has said it will not pay the ransom in line with government policy. The company has said the incident will cost it up to $35 million, but this figure excludes potential costs of litigation, which could increase the hit to shareholders significantly. Bloomberg intelligence analysts have estimated the hack could ultimately cost Medibank $700 million if customers sue for damages. And this figure could hit $960 million if 10% of affected customers join either of class actions and have paid the maximum $20,000 in damages, it said. And induction stoves are more precise than gas, easier to clean and can be powered by renewable electricity, says celebrity chef Darren Robertson, backing a push by commercial landlords Lendlease and the GPT Group to get rid of all gas from their buildings. Mr Robertson, a partner in the famed Three Blue Ducks chain of five restaurants, says plans by two of Australia's largest landlords to make their kitchens gas-free by 2040 reflects a wider trend away from gas and towards electricity for tasks such as cooking. Lendlease and the GPT Group have joined the Global CookSafe Coalition, a network of property, energy and development bodies committed to building no new kitchens with gas connections by 2030 and retrofitting all existing kitchen assets with energy-efficient electrical appliances. For the two Australian landlords, that also means making 3.84 million square metres of office, industrial and retail property they own, 2 million square metres for Sturdley's and 1.8 million square metres for GPT, gas-free by 2040. And Vicinity Centre's former Chief Executive Grant Kelly quit just days after receiving a first and final warning after a sexual harassment claim against him by the shopping centre's giant top corporate affairs office. A second, separate and equally damning report found a high degrees of workplace dysfunction in senior executive ranks stemming from Mr Kelly's behaviour. The two reports led to a board-level discussion with Mr Kelly, followed by his departure. The initial report, concluded early this month, was delivered by an independent investigator appointed by the board. It upheld multiple allegations against Mr Kelly, including that he made intrusive comments about the woman's attractiveness and boasted to her about his sexual conquests. The board received legal advice that Mr Kelly's statements constituted sexual harassment, breaching vicinity's workplace behaviour policy, and it imposed immediate sanctions, a first and final warning, and compulsory workplace behaviour training that was to be face-to-face and one-on-one. The second report, whose results were lodged soon after the first was the outcome of a 360 review, a performance appraisal which takes in feedback from a wide range of colleagues and which had been commissioned well before the sexual harassment complaint arose. The 360 review focused on vicinity's three top executives and concluded there was significant dysfunction and discord arising from some of Mr Kelly's behaviours. And Australian coal exporters have been falsifying data to suggest their coal is cleaner than it is in order to increase its export price in a scam involving two testing laboratories, major accounting firms and an investment bank, Federal MP Andrew Wilkie told Parliament on Monday. Wilkie says he's been provided with thousands of pages of documents by an industry whistleblower and called for a parliamentary inquiry into the allegations days after the corporate watchdog decided against taking action against one of the laboratory companies. According to the whistleblower and the documents he's provided, coal testing laboratories that certify the quality of coal shipments leaving Australia have been falsifying data to suggest the coal is of higher quality than their tests show. The falsified data shows the coal to be drier than it is. Since drier coal burns more cleanly, less of it is needed to be burnt for electricity and it creates fewer emissions per kilowatt produced so it can be sold for higher prices. For years, Australian industry leaders and politicians have justified 
outgoing coal exports as the world grapples with climate change on the grounds that Australian coal displaces the comparatively dirtier competitors' coal that would produce more greenhouse gas emissions when burnt. And Australia's buy-now-pay-later providers would need to obtain a credit licence and meet responsible lending obligations under two of three options put by Treasury to the government for assessment. In discussion paper released on Monday, Treasury officials say that BNPL's relatively looser regulatory environment, together with the sector's rapid growth, may be contributing to poor consumer outcomes. Issues raised with the officials, the document notes, include inappropriate lending practices, which are contributing to financial stress. Some 19% of BNPL consumers surveyed by the corporate regulator Treasury ads said they had cut back or gone without essentials to make repayments. The least fulsome of three options put forward by the Treasury officials would amend the Credit Act to impose a requirement for BNPL providers to check that a product is not unaffordable for a person before it's offered to them. Under that option, income and expense information would only be assessed if the amount being lent was above a certain figure and if a person was identified as risky. And a senior PwC partner has been accused of being involved in a $3.3 million fraud scheme with a husband, the proceeds of which allegedly went to funding a high-flying lifestyle including the purchase of a porch, Cayenne, and a major home renovation. Hong Shao, a Sydney-based assurance partner at the consulting major, is alleged to have had actual knowledge of the apparent fraud perpetrated by her husband, Di Wu, or had shut her eyes to the obvious, documents filed with the Federal Court allege. The claim, lodged by advertising materials business Creative Promotions, alleges Mr Wu, over a period of 12 years from, two, from mid-2010 to July 2022, obtained money dishonestly and fraudulently from Creative Promotions. Creative Promotions claims Mr Wu, who was employed as an overseas production assistant in 2005, later started issuing fake invoices to the company's accountant for payment to three companies, Pretty Arts Products, Best Promotions and Wenju Kind Care Import and Export. Two of these were legitimate suppliers, while Best Promotions was not. Mr Wu allegedly generated invoices which were entirely fraudulent, or which were for amounts in excess of services that ended, with the payments made into at least eight accounts at the Bank of China, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, the Agricultural Bank of China and HSBC. His alleged payments were eventually routed to Mr Wu's Westpac account and a Bank of China account in Ms Xiao's name. And the cost of catastrophe claims at QBE is climbing faster than expected, with the insurance giant warning of an estimated $100 billion blowout in its yearly target amid extreme weather events and expenses to the war in Ukraine. The ASX-listed insurer released a third quarter update on Monday which showed the net cost of catastrophe claims in the nine months to October was tracking at $880 million, with a catastrophe allowance for November-December set at about $180 million. This means QBE's assumed net catastrophe cost for 2022 will come out at $1.06 billion, higher than its previous allowance of $962 million. Catastrophe claims include cyclones, storms, floods and bushfires. And Snowy Hydro paid nearly $30 million in staff bonuses during the 2022 financial year, triggering Labor to ask a remuneration tribunal to review pay at the company. Data tabled to a Senate committee showed the government-owned group paid $29.6 million in short-term incentives across 1,446 employees in the last financial year, with an average payment of $20,492 per staff member. That compared to $24.6 $9 million or $17,100 for 1,457 staff members in the 2021 financial year. Snowy said none of the payments were made for its long-term incentive program for the last two years as the performance targets had not been met. The Remuneration Tribunal, which handles the pay of Commonwealth officers, will consider remuneration at Snowy as part of a review. Snowy Chief Executive 
Paul Broad quit in August following revelations of the cost crunch and tensions with Energy Minister Chris Bowen over green hydrogen at the company's proposed New South Wales Hunter gas plant. Mr Broad boosted his pay by more than $500,000 to $2.77 million in the 2021-22 financial year after being granted a short-term bonus boost compared with his $2.24 million pay packet in the previous year. Snowy's underlying profit after tax fell by 30% to $189 million from $27.1 million in 2021, with the company blaming an extreme winter that featured price caps and the suspension of the electricity market. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to the APAC General Manager of WeWork, Balder Toll. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about citizen juries. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.